Welcome to a special edition of the Innovation Agenda with the California Technology Council, where we take a close look at the relationship between government and the climate that supports innovation and entrepreneurship. Now we turn to our host in our Northern California headquarters, Matt Gardner, founder of the California Technology Council. Hi everybody, it's Wednesday, so it must be time for a new episode. Thanks again to Big Figment for the soundtrack. You can find more about them at bigfigment.com. CTC has some great events coming up. Check out the calendar at californiatechnology.org and look for upcoming events with CalCISO, the California Business Incubation Alliance, and a couple of our member orientations in Northern and Southern California as well. We also have a number of new benefits that we're excited about, so be sure to check out the job board, our insurance programs, and more at californiatechnology.org slash member benefits. On this episode of the Innovation Agenda, we're sharing with you part one of our interview with Matthew Lemerle, whose firm Fifth Era recently released the 2016 edition of an annual survey on investor attitudes toward internet regulation. But first, here's a quick word from our sponsors at Office Depot. Leading a startup team? Hi, this is Janet McTaggart with Office Depot. Whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or setting up a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. Office Depot can help. Learn about how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all these startup essentials and more at californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. On this episode of the Innovation Agenda, we're speaking with Matthew Lemerle of Fifth Era, a firm that has just released a report on the impact of internet regulation on investment. Matthew, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me, Matt. So, Matthew, could you set up the report first? Why are these questions in the big picture important questions to be asking? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, <clears throat> The Internet, as, as I think most people are very aware, has been one of the primary driving forces around the world over the last couple of decades in terms of both GDP and economic growth, but also in terms of jobs and new business creation. Uh, at this point, we're moving into a new phase where the Internet is also beginning to impact almost every industry, um, and most industries are moving towards more of a connected state. Um, when we began uh, exploring the Internet 20 years ago, lawmakers and regulators quite wisely decided to, uh, to be slow on regulating something that they didn't understand. And so the first few years of the Internet was characterized by very little uh, regulation. Uh, today, uh, there are lots of calls coming from many directions to regulate one or another aspect of the Internet, and every country around the world is in the midst of thinking through what they should or shouldn't uh, do with, with regards to the Internet, uh, the, the regulation of the Internet. Um, there are some situations, some possible plausible uh, future scenarios in which uh, regulation could substantially reduce the growth of the Internet, 
and this is something that we wanted to explore in more detail through our survey. So we, we explored a particular aspect of future internet regulation and how it might impact uh, the investors that drive uh, internet business formation and growth. Now, this is worth a bit of disclosure here because you and I have partnered for many, many years on a number of projects like this. Uh, but I think as, as you are prone to do, your, the nature of your inclusion in the audiences and the demographics that you surveyed is exceptional and over the top in terms of the, the number of different types of audiences that you sought to, to include and, and gain perspectives from. Can you talk, for example, about why it was important to get angel capital groups as a very different demographic from what large cap technology companies might say. Yes, thanks, Matthew, for that. Matt, for that. Um, so in terms of uh, the way lawmakers go about creating regulations, in most country, uh, you know, very professional uh, government representatives and lawmakers get together with the representatives of large companies. Uh, frequently academics and people who are doing research uh, into the industry in question, and then also user groups and lobbyists who may have a perspective. Uh, the Internet is a little bit different because almost all of the innovation of the Internet is being driven by emerging companies that are backed by investors. And in fact, much of the, growth, uh, much of the innovation that we're seeing coming uh, in most countries around the world is being driven by these emerging uh, Internet companies. Those companies and the investors that back them are not typically included in the regulatory formulation process. And yet at the same time, um, were the capital no longer available to, to Internet startups, it would have a dramatic impact on uh, the pace and progress of innovation. So in, we particularly wanted to speak to the investors. Um, and in, case, in the case of Internet emerging and startup companies, that tends to be the founders themselves, angel investors, and then to some extent venture capitalists, though most venture capitalists do focus on slightly later stage investing. So Matthew, if you could take that a little bit further, and could you describe what kind of investments we're looking at here? Because of course when we think about kind of cross-border capital flows, things like data centers might move relatively easily, but think of you know, angel investing in earlier stage capital is a little bit more difficult to move cross-border. So, so what are the kinds of investments that you're looking at here? Yes, so um, we, uh, our goal was to speak to people who are actively investing in Internet companies. Uh, the scope of the project was to look at investors of that nature across 15 countries. Uh, in the Middle East, in Asia, and then we also used the UK and the US as examples of sources of foreign direct investment, which is particularly important to some of the countries in the Middle East and Asia. In every case, all 475 of the investors that we spoke to is an internet investor, so they spend at least some of their capital focused on uh, investing in companies in that space. And then the particular stage of investment varies by the people we were speaking to. So some of them were angel investors, and therefore they were investing very early in emerging um, and early stage Internet companies. Some of them were venture capitalists who were more focused on the growth phase. And then we did speak to some public market funds who would be focused more on pre-IPO and then public uh, Internet companies. 
Matthew, could you maybe start with the uh, top line findings of the report and, and maybe begin with a sense of, um, of uh, where investors see that we are in coming from a, an era that was relatively free of regulation and moving toward an era where country by country we're seeing new regulations pop up all over the world? Yes. So um, this is the um, third time that we've done this survey. We conducted somewhat similar surveys, though the country uh, the country, uh, uh, countries of focus was more narrow in prior years. Uh, the first year, we focused primarily on the U.S. and certain European countries. The second time in 2014, we broadened the country scope in Europe. And as I say, this time we're focused uh, in the Middle East and Asia. Uh, so the country focus has changed. However, um, the, the first and, and perhaps somewhat unsurprising finding is around the world, in every country, uh, investors who focus on Internet investing are very concerned about the legal environment and the potential that regulation might negatively impact the investments that they make. And there's a couple of reasons for this. Um, there, you know, the, 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 well, three reasons in particular I'll mention. Uh, the first is, of course, most investors in most categories get concerned about regulation. Uh, regulation can uh, both boost the growth of their companies, but frequently can also uh, retard the growth of their companies. And investors in general don't like uncertainty and they don't like un unclear outcomes. However, in the Internet specifically, um, unlike most industries where a new regulation might impact the profit of an industry by a few percent, plus or minus, in the case of the Internet, a regulation can actually make it impossible to move forward with a particular business model or a particular product or service. So regulation has the ability to entirely invalidate and make unviable a particular Internet company and investment that a, uh, one of these investors might, might have made. And um, so, so all of the, uh, very consistently in all 15 countries that we spoke to in 2015, investors find the legal environment extremely uh, of concern. And, and in fact, most investors find the legal environment more threatening to Internet investment than either the state of the economy, the competitiveness uh, in the particular sector they're focused on, or the potential outcome that they're likely to, to receive. Well, so you mentioned uncertainty there, and one of the uh, more interesting uh, findings is, of course, that uh, just about uh, a supermajority of your respondents said that they uh, would be unhappy in a situation of regulatory ambiguity or uncertainty. So can we talk a little bit about that? Is that does that mean, for example, that um, certainty, even with slightly negatively impacting regulation, is better than uncertainty? In general, the answer is yes. So. Um, 75% of the worldwide investors that we surveyed said that they would be made uncomfortable uh, investing uh, in, in, in business models that were beset by regulatory ambiguity. And um, for the most part, investors would prefer to have a clear sense of the playing field, a clear sense of the types of issues, the types of requirements, the types of commitments that companies need to make. And, um, you know, when you make an investment into an emerging Internet business, uh, you have a lot of uncertainties already about the company's ability to be successful. So regulatory ambiguity layered on top just is sort of almost the, 
straw that breaks the camel's back. It's something that would uh, would be much better for most investors if they understood the playing field. Um, historically, as I mentioned in my opening comments, um, the regulatory environment for the internet was fairly open, and so there was not much ambiguity, but there also wasn't much regulation. Um, I think going forward, the next five years, we anticipate that there would be uh, a need for more regulation, but we're in a current phase where it's very unclear where particular countries or regions or the, or the world as a whole will, will, will move. So we've also been obviously in a relatively tax-free environment, and uh, Congress at the end of uh, 2015 renewed the Internet Tax Freedom Act. What's the relative state of taxation around the world on the Internet? Yes. So um, part of what we were interested in our survey and a theme that comes up quite a bit through our work is relative competitiveness of a region, a country, or even a particular um, in, uh, industry cluster. Um, if you are a decision maker, a lawmaker in a country like the U.S. or in a region like Silicon Valley, uh, what's particularly of concern to you is your relative competitiveness uh, in comparison to other places where Internet businesses might choose to base themselves. Um, there's a very small number of these businesses, and this is something I think is also a surprise to many lawmakers. So, for example, here in, the, in Silicon Valley and San Francisco Bay Area, which is the world's largest innovation cluster, um, the VCs only back about 1,000 Internet or 1,500 Internet companies per year. Uh, they back about 5,000 companies of all shapes and sizes in the U.S. And the angels back a handful more, maybe four or 5,000 in the Bay Area. So you have uh, a very small universe of companies. Now, each one of these companies is typically led by one or two co-founders or, you know, which, who may have the title CEO, CEO, or something of that nature. But the point is, if you multiply three or 4,000 companies by a couple of people, you can see the total population that, that are making the location decision is perhaps seven or 8,000 people. And most of them are not native Californians. They're people who have come to the San Francisco Bay Area from other parts of the world because they view it as a very pro-internet and pro-business environment in many respects. So relative competitiveness of regions is, is one of the themes that we pick up through this work. And so when you come to an issue like taxation, it's not just an issue of uh, is tax high or low, but the specific issue of double taxation becomes very relevant. Um, if you locate your Internet business in some jurisdictions, there is the risk that you expose yourself to double taxation and the investors specifically if certain regulations pass in the future. And that's a great concern to investors. So in fact, I believe um, we found that in, in the order of 80% of investors would say that they would be made uncomfortable investing in Internet businesses if a particular jurisdiction leaves them open to double taxation. That is amazing. I guess it shouldn't be surprising. What about, so let me put two of those questions together and talk about taxation uncertainty. The California Tech Council obviously has been dreadfully concerned about the process that Congress goes through through something called tax extenders. And the tax extenders issue to us is that a bunch of issues that ought to be priorities for the business climate in the U.S. get dropped into this kind of annual renewal cycle that to us seems like folly. 
And so last year we stepped out a bit on tax extenders and suggested that things like the R&D tax credit shouldn't be subjected to that same kind of silly process in our opinion. And fortunately for us, the R&D tax credit was lifted out of that and made permanent. So the same could be said for the Internet Tax Freedom Act, which has once again just been renewed for one year. What happens when you put together issues like taxation and certainty? Do you get people with a particular view of taxation of the Internet and a long-term view? Yes. Well, it's, in, it's very interesting. I think that most countries around the world understand and, uh, that innovation and is driving growth in their economies. And in fact, most countries around the world, when you look at their industrial policy, they have um, creating additional uh, innovation clusters is probably the number one or two on their list of to-dos. And this is both true of uh, emerging countries as well as very well well-established uh, um, uh, and large economies. Um, they are beginning to understand, and I say beginning because I think it's really only just beginning, uh, to understand that uh, early-stage companies and innovation are for the most part driven in, their, in the early phase by individuals. Uh, most of the investors who back startups today in most countries of the world are either founders, their families, or angel investors. Venture capitalists tend to follow on invest. And, and, and from a taxation and incentives point of view, many countries around the world are putting a lot of energy into trying to come up with ways to stimulate more of that type of investment. So we've seen, for example, here in the US, uh, recent extensions which allow people to pay less capital gains on early stage companies that meet certain profiles if they were invested in after 2010. And in some countries like Ireland, uh, which is an example, uh, they've put in place very generous benefits for angel investors. When you look at it from the other direction and you look at internet companies as a class, uh, you see something quite different. Um, internet companies, by definition, have the op opportunity to serve global customers. Um, in fact, most internet companies, when they have begun, don't have an aspiration to serve product, uh, products and services to customers in their local markets. Most of them actually begin with the goal of serving uh, a global audience or a regional audience or at minimum a national audience. And so you have a local company based in a specific city or location serving customers from many other countries. And that's where the double taxation issue right raises its head. Um, you, you're exposed to the risk that the business activity performed with an end user in a different market might be taxed twice, once in that local market because the user's based there, and once in the home of origin of the company itself. And um, so at the same time as lawmakers are trying to stimulate more innovation and putting in place tax, tax incentives and other types of incentives to stimulate the investors, they're also contemplating exposing the companies to increased taxation on the other side of the slate. And for an investor, it doesn't really make a difference whether you tax the company or tax them on their gains. It ends up being a reduction in the value of the return they receive for the capital they place into the investment. Uh, can, Matthew, can we turn our attention to content for uh, the next few minutes? I, I would love to get your view on what the response rates tell you about content. Can we start with the kind of free speech condition that we have here and in, uh, in lots of our trade partner countries? Is that condition unique to 
the U.S. the fairly unfettered freedom of speech, or did you find that in the countries that you surveyed to be kind of a universal condition? Well, of course not. Um, Matt, as you well know, there are many countries around the world who believe that it's important that they protect their cultures, their societies, and for some of them, they have different definitions of what acceptable content is, and so they choose and they wish to use laws and regulations to try and impose and maintain whatever values they have in their societies. And, and so we see some countries where censorship of certain types of speech are things that they find and consider important um, in the context of their own their own country and their own societies. Um, in terms of our survey, in almost every country, the, the in, internet investors um, say that they do think freedom of expression is extremely important. Uh, so we had about 79% of the investors said that they'd be less likely to invest in countries in which freedom of expression um, is restricted or highly regulated. And part of the reason for this goes back to the point that I made before, which is that Internet businesses, and all of this survey was focused on Internet businesses, Internet businesses seek to serve the largest possible audience. And so if an Internet company is based in a specific country and uh, that country does not allow uh, this type of content that the Internet businesses wishes to serve up, then obviously it begins with a big disadvantage. And I'll give you a very specific example just to put a sharp end of this. Um, in Saudi Arabia, which is one of the companies we reviewed, they do not wish to see any adult content on the Internet. And in fact, there are very severe um, implications for having a company that allow, enables adult content uh, into the community. And so, of course, by definition, or almost by definition, there are no Internet-related startups in Saudi Arabia operating within the adult industry. Now, regardless of what your view is on the adult industry, the point I'm making here is that uh, different types of Internet businesses can be turned on or turned off by specific types of regulation. And in the particular case of freedom of expression, of course, it has a dramatic impact on what types of content businesses can be founded and operated in a particular jurisdiction. Yeah, so great and direct uh, connection to a couple of the other issues that you raised in the survey here, including liability. So what are the various forms of regulatory switches that governments around the world are using to deter or punish uh, for that kind of content? And let me ask you a specific kind of example. If you're just the platform and the content is coming from users, can you, can you be held liable in some countries for third-party content? Yes. So in the early days of the Internet, most countries took the view that if you were a portal or an intermediary, uh, we used the phrase digital content intermediary in prior uh, surveys, if you were that type of Internet business, where you essentially facilitated the flow of content over your pipes, but you didn't actually create the content. Other people, either users or other professional uh, you know, corporations and entities created the content, then you would not be responsible for the nature of that content. And in America, we call that the uh, DMCA, the Digital Millennial Content Act, as I recall. Um, and so basically that gave a safe harbor to the Internet companies. It basically said the Internet companies would set up their businesses, set up their operations, 
if content, inappropriate content, which could be pirated content, or it could simply be content that was in some other respect viewed as inappropriate. If a request was uh, issued to take down that content, then the company needed a process to respond. However, they would not be themselves held liable for the actions of the users. And this allowed a lot of growth in the Internet and uh, is basically the status quo to a large extent that we operate under today in most countries, not all countries, uh, have something similar. Well, that is in discussion. So there are countries around the world who are in the process of introducing or exploring laws that would make the Internet business and the sometimes actually the executives within the Internet business personally responsible for the actions of third parties that they don't indeed themselves control. So the way that would work is, for example, if an end user uploaded a piece of content that was banned onto your site, not only would you then be expected to respond to a takedown request to get rid of that piece of content, but you as the CEO of that company or, as in, uh, or the company itself might be held personally responsible. So this is third-party liability for the Internet business. And from an investor point of view, of course, this is dramatic um, because it runs the risk that your, the company, the company you've invested in, could be made worth much less um, in a very short time frame simply because of the actions of users. Uh, and the question is also, what are the motivations of those users? So you can imagine, and now this sounds a bit like a conspiracy theory, I know, but if you, um, if you wanted to undermine the viability of a competitor business, you could easily set up a bunch of accounts and have essentially fake users put inappropriate content onto the platform and then have the platform closed down as a result or at least made liable as a result. So you, that's an example, but the point I'm trying to make is third-party liability is, is of enormous concern to investors. Yeah, a very difficult thing to, uh, to observe and keep an eye on as well. Can we talk for a second about uh, the infrastructure of the Internet? So the, a couple of years ago, there was a kind of sweeping exploration and um, many countries uh, that are, are, are already part of a, the global business plan uh, that you might assume takes, uh, takes form in every even early stage company, but both the, uh, the data localization issues that popped out of that dialogue over the last five years and the pipe itself have become um, a conversation uh, all over the world. So how did those things uh, surface in your survey, Matthew? Yes. So we did ask a couple of questions specifically about this issue, and you're absolutely right, Matt. It is an area that's uh, being explored. Um, it begins with a pretty straightforward uh, concern, which is uh, if users in my country are interacting with the Internet, um, I, do, I want them to meet the local laws of my country. So if I ask that their data be held locally, then I can find ways to potentially enforce my local regulations. I may, for example, as a country, as a security service, I may ask for access to the data and the information that my own population is generating and so on. So it begins there, but then, of course, you start moving into, I guess it's really a prisoner's dilemma, which is if one person expects it, then another does too. And before you know it, everyone is asking for local data uh, centers, either 
for example, storing data in each of the local countries. From the perspective of an investor and from the perspective of an Internet business, this begins as a cost issue um, and a complexity issue. Um, many of the Internet businesses, even quite successful businesses, might only have 30 to 50 employees, and most of those individuals will be developers and engineers and, and others who are focused on creating the product or service. Um, now all of a sudden you have to operate data uh, storage facilities, servers, and, and other things in every country in which you operate. And because of the Internet, as I've already mentioned, is essentially boundaryless. Even a startup might have clients in dozens and dozens and even hundreds of countries. So, um, for example, a video game company pushing up a game onto the Apple platform may actually be reaching 150, 170 countries almost straight away when it goes live. Um, so in the case of Internet businesses, local data requirements can become quite complex quite quickly, and especially if you then have to add to the physical location of the data in market also the requirement to respond to requests or, or interact with people who want access to that data, which is a slightly separate topic, which we're also covering in the survey, then straight away the cost and the complexity becomes fairly substantial. What in practice does that mean? Well, if you're a startup in a very large country like the U.S., it's probably of less concern because your home market is very large. If you're a startup in a very small country, some, like some of the ones that we looked at in this survey, such as Israel, I just use that as one example in question, then um, it, it, your home market is already quite small. And now if you also have to worry about the complexity of data localization in every market in which you reach, and you had to go to multiple countries right from the get-go because your home market wasn't big enough to get you started, then you've got this burden from day one. So anyway, I, I, it's a, it's, there are lots of facets to this particular issue. Uh, we do expect that there will be uh, local data requirements on Internet businesses. There already are in a lot of places. But you can see it starts multiplying very quickly and becomes very burdensome. And I think most people, not all, but most people who are running these countries and are responsible for their governments and people, they expect that the Internet will still be a very positive influence on their growth rate, but then they start moving down this path to introduce laws that may make it actually quite hard for them to execute successfully their local industrial and innovation strategies. All right, great stuff there from Matthew Lamerle at Fifth Era. We've posted the survey in the research section of the California Technology Council's website. And we'll have part two of the interview in the next episode. Stay tuned for other interviews coming up soon with one of the founders of Radian 6, a couple of startup spotlights coming your way soon, and watch for a few new episodes on our YouTube channel as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Innovation Agenda is produced in Northern California by the California Technology Council. 